One of the questions that bothered me in the Parsha is why in the world would Rivka be willing to take such a leap of faith at such a young age, exactly how old she is is not so clear. Rashi famously comments she was three years old, but even if you believe that she wasn't three years old, like the Eben Ezra, or like the Dasikane Baliatos, Dasikane Baliatos, she was 14, the Eben Ezra, not so clear, but certainly older. Um, one may wonder, it's a really big leap of faith. It really requires an incredible amount of, you know, spine for, for, I guess, such a little girl. She never met Yitzchak. If you look at the Psukim, Eliezer doesn't, assuming it's Eliezer, Chazal, the Torah never spells it out, but let's assume for now, like Chazal is Eliezer. The, Eliezer never really says, oh, here's this guy named Yitzchak, and let me tell you about him. When she interacts with him, it's clear that she had never met him before. It's not like they knew each other, you know, that they had met at the well last time or something like that. And here she is, willing to sacrifice, give up, take an incredible leap of faith, leaving her family, leaving everyone behind, going to marry a man she never met, or for that matter, doesn't really, really even know if he exists. It's not like Eliezer, you know, brought along a picture on his cell phone to show Rivka what Yitzchak looked like. There were a lot of leaps of faith that required Rivka to take. Number one, Yitzchak existed. Number two, Eliezer is actually Avraham's servant who's going to bring me to him. And not some crazy man who came over here with a bunch of, with a donkey and a story and is trying to take me, you know, a little girl and who knows what. Number three, Yitzchak is the wonderful wife, that husband, that I assume he is, especially if Eliezer doesn't really offer any details. And therefore one may wonder, where does Rivka's perseverance come from? She must be dedicated and focused and interested. And the truth is, there are several indications, perhaps in the Chumash itself, that one may, I guess, begin to uncover and see perhaps what Rivka had in mind. And I'd like to share three different insights, three different angles as to perhaps what it was that Rivka saw that enables her to take this incredible leap of, leap of faith. Number one, aware of Rivka's righteousness and observing how she selflessly drew water for Eliezer, for the camels, you see an incredibly strong contrast between the values of her and the values of her family. Perhaps right away, we can speculate at least, and suggest right away she knew, even before Eliezer came, this is not the house I want to grow up in. These are not the people I want to identify myself. They're people I feel connected to. Lavan and Basuel are not known for their religious integrity, for religious commitment, and perhaps Rivka right away was looking just to get out of the house. Number one. Number two, it's certainly not unreasonable to believe that Avraham was well known and she had heard of him. After all, he had unparalleled dream, religious revolution, 
He was certainly wealthy. Beyond his wealth, he was an unparalleled philosopher at the time. Militarily successful. And even if Avraham wasn't famous to the point that Rivka had heard of him, he was her great uncle. And perhaps the tale had been passed around in her family. Oh, we got this, you know, the Haredi side of the family, you know. And Avraham said, Sion, yeah, the from side of the family. Avraham, you know. Avraham, and we know he is, and we've heard of him, and you know, it could be some servant comes along and says, I'm the servant of Avraham. Right away, Rivka was attracted to him because of her incredible romantic. <laughs> her incredible affinity to connect to Avraham. Rivka was very much in line with Avraham. Could you put the light back on? It's on a timer. It could be Rivka naturally connected to Avraham, and there's a lot of parallels from Rivka to Avraham. At some other point in time, we'll talk about them perhaps. But they certainly both leave their home and their birthplace. They certainly both leave their family to go to Eretz Yisrael on an unknown mission of serving Hashem. And ironically or surprisingly, Avram even says, when he sends Eliezer to go gather Rivka to go find a girl, he says, you know, head back, El, uh, El, 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 El Beis Saviv, Eretz Moladati, or something like that. I don't know if it's the exact Russian Apostle. But Avram says, go back to the land, I, you know, my, my birthplace and my home, which almost sounds like Rivka's having a Lech Lecha experience. And perhaps Rivka naturally identifies with Avraham and his value set, and therefore is willing to go. But perhaps, perhaps one can suggest a third answer. And I want to share with you something fascinating about Rivka's... Fascinating perspective into Rivka. If you look in the Pesukim, you'll see it's even very, very strong. You don't have all the Pesukim in front of you. But if you look in Perek Chavdalid, you got the second half over here, which is good. The Torah, when describing... When describing um, Eliezer, jumps back and forth between two different titles. Sometimes the Torah calls him Eved, and sometimes the Torah calls him Ish. And at first glance, there seems to be really no rhyme or reason for it. He starts out as Eved Avraham. Avraham tells him, you know, make a shvua, simya, yarchatachas yerechi, etc., etc. And in the beginning, there's a lot of Lushen of Eved over and over and over again. If you're looking in Parak Chavdalid, Pasuk Hay, for example, Vyomre love Ha'eved, maybe she's not going to want to come in Pasuk Tess, for example, Vayasem Ha'eved es Yadav Tachas Yerach Avraham, maybe Pasuk Yud and Yud Zayin, you find it a lot. However, if you continue on, when she gets to Rivka's house, they call her Ish, Vayikod Ha'ish, Vayishtach Hashem. Not only do you have that, you find it numerous times, Pasuk Chavtes, Lavan goes to the Ish. And again, you find it in Pasuk Lamed, twice in Lamed Al, Lamed Beis, pardon me. And then the Torah goes back and calls him an Evid again. And perhaps some of the more, maybe the most peculiar Sukkim, 
Let's take a look for a second on the sheets that I sent out, or a little bit of them. Take a look in Perak, let's say Nun Tes for a second. Vayishalchu es Rivka achusam ves menikasam ves Eved Avraham ves Anashav. He's back to an Eved in Pasuk Nun Tes. Take skip to Samach Aleph. Vatakam Rivka v'narusav v'tarkavna ala gmalim v'telach nachrei ha'ish. They went after the Ish. Vayikacha Eved es Rivka, but the Eved took Rivka. You almost get the impression from Pasuk Samach Aleph that there are two people. Ish, Eved, Ish, Eved. Torah says it was Eliezer. Is it possible two guys went? I would like to suggest not. But the question is, why is there this backing and forth of Ish, Eved, Eved, Ish? Why doesn't the Torah just stick to one language? Why does it just tell us who the guy is? Why do you jump back and forth? What do you gain by such a a move. <coughs> and again, it's difficult that this was done accidentally, that Akadosh Baruch Hu just kind of let it slip under the radar. You know, it's not like one time he called him the wrong thing. It's back and forth and back and forth. The truth is, if you accept, as we certainly don't, you know, it's Kfira, if you accept the documentary hypothesis, this is one of the major things they talk about. Oh, look at this. You see Avraham, you see the different authors, whoever authored one part of the story, didn't offer the next part of the story, after sometimes it's called Ish, sometimes it's called Eved, there must have been two different authors. We each authored half a story, didn't know the other guy was going to offer half the story. It just happened to work out perfectly, and one guy used the word ish, and one guy used the word eved. It's very difficult to say that at many levels. For stars, it's fear, so you wouldn't have to entertain the possibility. But even beyond it, you know, there's this uh, one guy offered, authored the first and the third of the quarters of the story, and the next guy parts two and four without having known of each other. But the question's a very good one. And I'd like to suggest perhaps an answer. It's not a simple answer. Pardon me, it's not a sophisticated answer. It's pretty simple. But I do believe it answers the question. I believe it's brilliantly insightful, and I believe it's inspiring once you understand the larger picture. Every time, here's the theory, every time the Torah calls him an Eved, it's because he's being seen as an Eved. And every time the Torah calls him an Ish, it's because he's being seen as an Ish. And that shouldn't be an overwhelmingly difficult theory to palate. It makes a lot of sense, but if you look inside, it's, it, it works like a charm. Every one of these 20 times, his name comes up, it's explained. The first time Avram says, please go and take the girl and swear, so the Evid goes. Why is he an Because he's Avram's Evid going. When he gets there, Rivka looks at him, Lavan looks at him, and they see an ish. They've never been so impressed with such a person in their life ever. Then it's his turn to take along the, you know, Rivka... And therefore he does. He's an Evid again. And, you know, the, the, the Bill, uh, what's it called, Besuel and Lavan see him. They want to give him jewelry or ass, whatever, right? You know, uh, they want to invite him into the house, invite him this ish. And perhaps Pasuk Samach Aleph really captures it to clear. Let's take a look again. Vatakam Rivka Venaro Seha Viterkavna Lagmalim Ish. Who does Rivka follow? The Ish. Vayikacha Evid es Rivka. But the Eved took Rivka. Why? Because Rivka followed who she saw as an Ish. But the reason why he brought them back is he was wearing his Eved hat, his Eved Avraham hat. If that's correct, that may be a third reason why Rivka accompanied Eliezer. You want to know why? She had never met a man in all of her life of such stature, of such dignity. She's never met a man so impressive. This is the first Ish she's ever seen. And if this ish is just an evid of Avraham, 
Well, then what? Could you imagine what happens when she first sees who her husband's going to be? Let's take a look. Continue in the parak over here, a little bit just towards the end. Pasuk Samach Gimel. Yitzchak Yitzchak went out. Literally means to speak in the field. But Chazal say means to daven, which makes a lot of sense. Lifnot Erev, before evening. We call that Mincha. What does Yitzchak see? The caravan of camels approaching. Vatisa Rivka Eseneha. Rivka opens up her eyes and she sees Vatera Es Yitzchak. She sees Yitzchak. Vatipol Meal Hagamal. And she falls off the camel. Interesting detail the Chumash wants to let us be aware of. Is that important for the story on any level? Let's continue. There are two explanations, actually, why. The Rashbam says it was a more tsenua way when she's riding the camel. You have to, women have to sit in the very end of she had a very tight skirt. She had to, you know, hack it up a little bit. I don't know. It says the Rashbam, she wanted to be a little more tsenua. So she went off the camel. It's more tsenua that way. I presume it was long, but it's even longer, perhaps, just to make sure you know I'm from. But the Nitziv says something fascinating. The Nitziv says Rivka was just awestruck was just so impressed by Yitzchak. Her, it, it, it wasn't, she didn't jump off for sneeze purposes. She fell off out of, just, 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 she was overwhelmed. And if this is correct, look how powerful the next Pasuk is. Pasuk, Samachem, Vatomer El Ha'eved. This is the first time in the entire story Rivka looks at him and sees him as an Eved. you want to know why? You'll see the next few words. Vatomer el ha'eved. Mi ha'ish ha'azeh Until now, Rivka called Eliezer the ish the entire time because she's never met a man of such stature, of such dignity, of such depth. She's never met such an impressive man in all of her life. And after laying eyes upon Yitzchak for once, she turns to the Eved, who's no longer the ish. It says, who's that ish over there? And perhaps Rivka's response of falling off the donkey and saying, who is this ish? And her next response, Vayomer ha'eved. Again, Hu adoni She covers herself up. Vayisaper ha'eved li'itzchak is called dvar ma'asher ha'asav. Vayavya yitzchak ha'ol asara imo v'ikach is Rivka. Vatilo li'shav ya'avya v'yenachem yitzchak ha'achare imo. Yitzchak welcomes Rivka into his mother's tent. Yitzchak says, Rivka, why don't you live in my mother's tent and I'll marry you whenever you later on. You can imagine this little girl, Rivka, totally overwhelmed by the Eved. Kavachomer, overwhelmed by Yitzchak, who she's supposed to marry. And Yitzchak says to her, take your time. I'll wait. But more than that, he says, I want you in Sarah's tent because it's important you should know we think you fit into this family. We think you can replace Sarah. We think you can fill her shoes, but we also want you to know you should take your time whenever you're ready. And therefore, Rivka puts, Dafka is put, Yitzchak puts Rivka in Sarah's tent to let her know she can achieve greatness, but also to let her know it's at her own pace. Now, there's a lot to talk about in terms of Yitzchak's sensitivity. And there's a lot to talk about in terms of Rivka's ability to break from her ideological 
mess that she grew up in and identify with Avram's family, but I want to focus on one small point. A point that probably is the most subtle, but one of the most important. I want to talk about Rivka's reaction when she sees Yitzchak. Because there are numerous people who have encountered Yitzchak, and there are numerous people who have encountered the Avos, who didn't react the way Rivka did. Certainly the way the Chumash presents it. There's a great story that Rav Shlomo Kalbach tells about Schwarzer Wolf. I'll tell it briefly, but it's an incredible story. If you want, feel free to go on YouTube and listen to the Schwarzer Wolf story. I'm going to do it this justice. I like this story so much. When I was younger, I listened to it so many times I knew every word by heart. So the story goes is that there's a man who can't have children for many years, struggling, sad, and he goes to Rebbe after Rebbe, and finally one Rebbe says, you know, if you go to the Schwarzer Wolf, he's the head of the 36th Tzaddikim, he's in his hands, he's heaven and earth. If you can get invited for one Shabbos, he's the only one, he's the only one for all the gates of, who all the gates will have him will open. That's word for word for better sentence. And he decides he's going to go to the Schwarzer Wolf, even though he's shocked that the Schwarzer Wolf has to give him the bracha to have children, because everyone looks at the Schwarzer Wolf as disgusting and ugly and inconsiderate. And no one has any respect for the Schwarzer Wolf, and he goes to the Schwarzer Wolf, and he sees the most disgusting man, and his children are ugly, and usually children are beautiful, but these... And the way the story goes is this, this man needing the bracha over Shabbos is trying to figure out how is he ever going to ever going to ask the Schwarzer Wolf for a bracha. The Schwarzer Wolf is rude and inconsiderate. It makes him sleep in the stable, opposed to inviting him in, and he's shocked that he's one of the Lamed Tzadikim. And then you know, over Shabbos, he's thinking, how's he going to ask? And how's he going to talk? And how's he going to bring it up? And finally, 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 at the end of Shabbos, at the end, end, end of Shabbos, he goes up to the Schwarzer Wolf. And, he, and on his way in, he davens to Hashem like he's never davened before. He says, Hashem, I need your help to gather the strength. I want to have children. I want to perpetuate the world. I want to serve you. Please, Hashem, give me the strength. And by the time he gets to the Schwarzer Wolf, the way the story goes is he's never seen, he's like the high priest on Yom Kippur, he's never seen a, ha, a more beautiful looking man, and the people who are so ugly are so wonderful, beautiful, exquisite. And the Schwarzer Wolf says, I know what you come from, I know what you come from, I bless you to have a son, I have only one request, please name him Schwarzer Wolf after me. And the way the story goes, and this is unbelievable, is he supposedly dies the next day, and no one wants to bury him, and he gets up and he says, Yidin, do you know who he was? He was the head of the Lamed Vav Tzadikim. And he himself has a son, he named Schwarzer Wolf. And the way the story goes, Rishon Kabach was telling the story in Tel Aviv several years after. He told the story, and in the last row, a guy starts waving his hands, he goes, my father's name was Schwarzer Wolf Ben Chan, who was named after his grandfather, who was named after the baby who was born, who was named after the Lamed Vav Tzadik of Schwarzer Wolf, or something like that. It's on there, if you type in Schwarzer Wolf, you'll hear it. And I love that story, I, don't know, I couldn't tell you why I loved it. And then it hit me. The point of the story, and he, Shlomo Kavach spells it out, it just took me some time to get it. And it's a very important lesson. If you look at beautiful things and you see something ugly, it says a lot more about your eyes than it does what you're, what you're looking at, the object. He says, Lamed Vav Tzadikim, are mamish like a mirror. If you look at them and you see them as ugly, it's because give out, you're so ugly. If you look at Lamed Vav Tzadikim, you see how beautiful they are. It's a reflection that you can see beauty. Rivka identified with all the right values. And when she saw a man like Yitzchak, 
she was awe-inspired, awestruck, and impressed. If you look at all the right things and you see all the wrong things, it's a reflection of being cynical and sarcastic and sadly in a desperate need to wash your eyes out. Not on a literal level. I was once watching a movie, they filmed it actually, a movie called Trembling Before God. It's about men, orthodox men struggling with same-sex attractions. It's actually the one scene of a bunch of kids playing basketball. I'm in that scene, you've got to look carefully. My brother-in-law, a bunch of my friends were playing basketball. In any event, at the end of the movie, they have these outtakes. Outtakes, and they were discussing with all sorts of men struggling with same-sex attraction issues. You know, they heard them speak, then they had some rabbis speak. Then they had the producer speak. And the producer, he himself, if I'm not mistaken, has same-sex attractions, identifies as homosexual. And he himself never really knew anyone religious, never knew anyone from. And his only exposure to Orthodox Judaism was making this movie about boys who had grown up and feel basically more or less just like on some level, but certainly a significant level, outcasts. And I was thinking to myself, here's a, a gay producer who has no exposure to Judaism, but dealing with how the Orthodox community deals with gays. What possible positive perspective might this man have? I couldn't imagine. I was somewhat fearful when I watched it, but he told two great stories. One is he told the story of meeting the Amshin Rebbe. This was unbelievable. He says, I went in there, the, the Amshin Rebbe calls you at 3 in the morning. I waited from 11 till 3, and I walk in there, and he goes, I started talking about the pain these boys are going through. I've never seen a man taking the pain like the Amshin Rebbe took him in. I've never seen anyone take in their pain. I see he was crying, and I was crying. It was such an emotional experience. And at four in the morning, I'm crying in this old rabbi's, you know, beard. My face is just engulfed in beard, and I've never felt more warm in my... Mom's like a story you wouldn't believe. But then he tells the second point, and this is really what struck me, why I'm telling it to you. The second point is he says, I had no exposure to Orthodox Judaism. And it's funny, because I dealt with people who struggled in it and can't find comfortability in it, but somehow there's something so beautiful about Torah mitzvahs. And I was thinking to myself, this man has beautiful eyes. The message for us, I think, is an important one on many levels. Number one, if you walk around there, it's a even the old city, and you see dirt opposed to Kedusha, it reflects something about how you look. If you look at Gedole Torah and you don't see the sincerity and commitment, but instead you see something negative, it says a lot about your eyes. If you look at Chazal and you walk out with the conclusions that they're prehistoric opposed to, they brought morality to the world. If you look at the Torah and you say it's ancient opposed to, it enlightened the world with a moral code for the first time in world history. If you look at rabbis and you question, and you shouldn't be blind, but cynically you just can't get over the fact that perhaps some of them genuinely want to serve Hashem mm-hmm. and they're not just interested for their own egos and power trips. To have eyes like Rivka, to have eyes like this guy who went to the Schwarzer Wolf for a bracha, it's very important to have these eyes. 
it's important to see positive things positively. And lest the <coughs> pessimists in the room tell themselves as I'm speaking, Rabbi Horn, I'm a realist. Don't only look at the optimistic side, I'm a realist. That's why I look at the, you know, the glass, the half-full, the half-empty part of the glass. If you're really a realist, you look at the half-empty part of the glass. No. If you're a realist, you recognize it's both half-full and both half-empty. If you're an optimist, you focus on the positive, the full. If you're a pessimist, you focus on the negative, on the empty. But everyone's a realist. No one thinks that it's really, you know, a full glass or empty. Everyone's fully aware that the glass is half empty and half full. The question is, where is your emphasis? Where are you stressing? What are you looking at? Why should one be an optimist? Isn't it better to be a realist? So for starters, again, most realists are just pessimists in disguise. It's just a rationalization for looking at the half part that's empty, because realists see both. But beyond that, there are two more reasons to be an optimist. Number one is I think the Torah values dream more than cynicism. I think the Torah values vision and ambition and the ability to accomplish, and the desire to accomplish more than sarcasm, yeyush, giving up. Avraham, you get the impression, was a visionary with dream and an optimist. But beyond that, people who are optimists enjoy life more. People who are optimists are happier. But the point I'm making tonight is the last one, which is people who have optimists, people who are optimists, their eyes see beauty. They don't miss out on beautiful things. If you look at Rev Hadari and you don't see how Torah can make you a melech, you're missing something. If you look at Rev Nevinsal, and you don't see how Torah can make you just dedicated to nothing in the world but what a Kaddish Baruch Hu wants. You miss out on something powerful. If you look at Chazal, without Yiras Shemayim, and it comes from the Pasuk, Es Laravos Tamir Chachamim, part of Yiras Shemayim is learning how to appreciate Chazal. If you don't see the Torah, mitzvot, Am Yisrael, Jews, if you don't find the pimple in the sham, if you don't see something positive, it means your eyes need some re-navigating, some cleansing and redirecting. The godless of this particular Mahalich and Bereshis Perek Chafdalid is not only Yitzchak's incredible sensitivity and understanding what Rivka needed at the time, although that's very impressive. And not only the fact that Rivka was willing to leave behind all the garbage, even her family, people she loved, because she felt it was necessary to grow religiously. The point I want to focus on tonight is enabling your eyes to see beauty and not blinding yourself from it. There are people I know who talk about Yitzchak negatively and critically, the truth is, if you read the Nitziv, the rest of the Nitziv that I quoted a moment ago, he's got negative comments about Yitzchak. 
I'm not saying to be blind. To, it, it'd be silly to say Yitzchak and Avram have all the same milas. Avram has certain milas. Yitzchak has other milas. Avram even has certain chesronos. And Yitzchak has certain chesronos. They weren't perfect people. They all sinned. But to focus on the good, to focus on the beauty, in order to just appreciate aesthetically beautiful things that the world that Torah have to offer. It requires a controlling and navigating of Midos, particularly in the Western world, where we're taught to be somewhat cynical and certainly skeptical of non-modern Western values. And even though they've replaced yesteryear's values and tomorrow years, or whatever the right word is, will replace today's values, we're taught to believe that the Western culture has finally hit the epitome of morality, the epitome of correct philosophy. The only dogma is that there is no dogma. God doesn't care what you do as long as you're not politically incorrect. <coughs> it's challenging. And it requires emotional and intellectual guidance. But the path is worth it. Because you see such beauty with the right pair of glasses. Have a good job. Yes, I know.